0: Welcome to Season 3, Episode 20 of Beyond the Zero. I'm your host, Ben. Joining me today is Natasha Wimmer. Natasha is a translator. Her latest translation is Voyager by Nona Fernandez. It's out now from Great Wolf Press. Welcome to the show, Natasha.
1: Thanks.
0: So happy to be here. How's life in Brooklyn at the moment?
1: Oh, it's sunny and, um, lovely. It's great.
0: Excellent. Okay. Most of the people listening to this immediately will associate your name with Roberto Bolaño. We'll talk about him a bit later, but first I wanted to ask you about your background and how you got into translation.
1: Well, I um, I first learned Spanish as a kid in Spain. My family lived in Spain for four years when I was growing up. And then I studied Spanish literature in college and spent a year at the Complutense in Madrid. Um, But I really got into translation through publishing because my first job after college was at Ferris, Strauss & Giroux, which is famously a great publisher of translation, um, and I was working with Jonathan Glossy, who was the editor-in-chief at the time, and helping to um, vet translators and commission translations. And um, we were looking for a translator for a Cuban novel called Dirty Havana Trilogy, and we we're having a hard time finding someone. And mm-hmm. so I sort of boldly suggested that maybe I could do a sample, and um, and then it started
0: from there. Okay. Who's the Denny Havana trilogy by?
1: It's Pedro Juan Gutierrez. Okay.
0: Very interesting. Okay. Sounds good. You were telling me just before we started recording about your father's work in Spain when you were uh, spending your time there. Do you want to tell us briefly about that?
1: Yeah, sure. No, my dad was a minister, and well, he still is, but he was a minister for um, an international church called the International Interdenominational Community Church of Madrid. Um, it was part of a network of churches around Europe. I'm not even sure if they still exist, but the idea was that it was sort of like a uh, an interdenominational church for expats. Hmm. Um, so, you know, it attracted a lot of interesting characters.
0: And so now with your work, you're doing the translation. You're also teaching translation, aren't you? Correct. Okay. And where do you teach?
1: I teach, I'm a visiting lecturer at Princeton, and essentially I've been teaching there every... Spring semester for ten years at this point, which is kind of surprising. Um, and then almost as long at Columbia, and I there I teach in the MFA program a similar writing workshop or translating workshop. Um, and I do that every two years, yeah. in both cases, I'm teaching a translation workshop. At, at yeah. Princeton, it's from Spanish to English, and at Columbia it's from any language,
0: okay. So, I've asked a lot of translators this question, but what do you think the keys to a good translation are?
1: Well, for me, I think one of the major things that I think about is cadence and rhythm, um, and because I think that that that's sort of the sort of connective tissue of the writer's voice is something that's um, that's really important to the reading experience, and it's not something that, that and there's not an obvious way to recuperate that in translation. So I, you know, I try to be very conscious of. Um, of the rhythm of the sentences that I'm translating, and um, where the where the where the stresses fall, um, I think a lot about these sort of what I think of as kind of like cadenza sentences, or you know, um, um, you know, sentences that the writer is building up to and that have special force, and try to translate those with special care. So I guess that would be that would be the main thing for me. Okay,
0: and do you find like in terms of languages because you. Translate some people from Chile, but also from other places that uh, speak Spanish. Is there differences in the way that people write in those different countries?
1: Yes, definitely. I mean, of course, there are differences. Just um, you know, among writers from no matter where they're from, um, and some writers, you know, write in a more local register than others. Um, I'm, you know. I'm actually working, just starting work on a Cuban novel, the first one that I've translated since, the very, very first novel that I translated 20-some years ago. Um, and I was a little nervous about it because Cuban uh, Cuban Spanish is not something that I have a lot of familiarity with. Um, but this novel, some of the... It's written in, in multiple voices, and some of the voices are very Cuban, and others are, are sort of more neutral. Um, and... Um, so, you know, it, it's sort of writer by writer, even chapter by chapter, um, you know, I do think that um, trying to get across, well, you know, those are the classic example of this in the books that I've translated is The Savage Detectives, which is written in so many voices and has written um, their characters from all over Latin America. Um, and uh, uh, and I do think that inevitably some of that texture, local texture is lost, Um and there's not a lot that the translator can do to recuperate it. But, you know, I just think that you have to trust that um, what the writer is trying to do comes across on other levels and in different ways, not just in the very local vocabulary.
0: Yeah, I was talking to Ross Benjamin about, I guess, fidelity of translation in terms of the how much you can do directly and how much you just have to, I guess, take the, the feel or the register of the writing. And that's kind of, I think that's that's really important part
1: Right. Well, I, I guess I've learned more and more to trust the writer, to trust that the writer is, you know, the effects of the writer is getting are being achieved on all kinds of levels. And even if you lose, you know, the flavor of a certain word, it's not the end of the world because there are these, you know, sort of redundancies in a really great book.
0: Yeah. Well, it would be remiss of me not to ask you about Roberto Bologna. I know our audience and me consider him one of the very best writers of the century, and twenty six sixty six and Savage Detectives are considered modern classics. Between you and fellow Aussie Chris Andrews, uh, you've translated all of his work. Can you tell us how you came to translate his work into English?
1: Yeah, sure. And first a shout out to Chris Andrews since, uh, since you're in an Australia and so is he. Um, I only met him once when he was in New York years ago, but uh, he's wonderful. Um, And I think, I hope we have some mutual appreciation going on. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I first came to translate Bolaño um, because, well, Chris Andrews had translated um, several of the short um, earlier novels for New Directions. Um, And then Ferris, Strauss, and Giroux um, uh, acquired um, The Savage Detectives in 2666. The translations were offered to Chris Andrews. Um, But he declined them, I believe, because of his academic schedule. Um, And, you know, I at that point had a relationship with Ferris, Strauss, and Giroux, and I had actually written a report of the Savage Detectives for them, um, a reader's report. And I just, you know, fell in love with the novel and and thought it was the best thing I had read in Spanish or English um, for a really long time. And so, you know, I said, well, uh, if this, you know, If, you know, if there's any chance, I'd certainly love to be considered for the translation, and so that was how,
0: that was how it came about. Amazing. And this was post his death, wasn't it?
1: Yes, it was just after his death.
0: Okay. Very cool. With 2666, um, which I think is his magnum opus, were there difficulties with translation in terms of, I guess, that unfinished nature of it to some extent?
1: Um, no, not really. I mean, not more so than the difficulties that I had with Bolano's translating Bolano in general, in the sense that I didn't really have a great person to ask questions about when I, to when I was unsure of some of the meaning of something. Mm-hmm. Um, um, I tried to get in touch with his literary executor at the time, Ignacio Echevar- 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 um, but we never really managed to connect. Um, so a lot of it was sort of, uh, me trying to figure it out on my own and, you know, consulting with friends or acquaintances. Um, but you know, in the sense that it was unfinished, I, you know, no, I, I didn't really feel that about 2666, um, more so some of the other later books that I translated. Although even there, I don't think it really became a translation issue. Mm-hmm. Um, in some ways, 2666 was an easier I mean, pretty much in every way. Twenty-six sixty-six was an easier book for me to translate than *The Savage Detectives*, um, just because it is a slightly more well. First of all, it's it's third person versus first person. Um, *The Savage Detectives* is more um, there are so many voices. It's more personal. It's more local. Um, I think of it as Bologna's character novel, and Twenty-six sixty-six is his ideas novel. And ideas and conceptual the conceptual aspects of it were easier than. Because translation, or at least translation for me, um, is easier when it's more formal. Um, So, or that's a register that I find easier to handle and that I think works better in translation. Um, And obviously, 2666 is full of so many things. It's not all, um, you know, it had its difficulties too. But, um, I mean, of course, there, there are lots of places where I had to do, you know, Research, um I'm thinking about section, the section section about fate, the part about fate, um, uh, my editor encouraging me to read um Black Panther speeches and that uh, you know, and then there's a little divination section doing divination research, and um you know the the seaweed said the fifth section, the whole the whole um the whole speech about sea um, that also required some research. So, you know, but that kind of thing, you know, it takes some time, but it's, it's, it's very doable.
0: Yeah. The books should have come out posthumously. They're varied in quality. There's been some criticism of the mining of his old hard drives for content. Are there more books in the pipeline?
1: That I don't know. Um, I sort of doubt it just because it's been a while and I haven't heard anything. Um, but, um, yeah, I don't know.
0: Yeah. Of those works, I think that like the ones that have come out in the last ten years, do you have some some works that you think particularly stand out?
1: Uh, I love the Third Reich. I think that yeah. that is sort of a minor masterpiece, mm. uh, and part of the reason I like it is because well, I think that it's it's not what the well it's not what the reader expects on um, on the sentence level. Um, it doesn't have a lot of those sort of um, very sort of um, opaque um, sort of Flights of lyricism that some of his other books has. is more prosaic, although his other books also have those prosaic passages. Um, but I think the weirdness of, I, I think the genius of the bo- of the Third Reich is um, is structural and the way that Bolano sort of builds up to this anticlimax and then just keeps going and going and going beyond the point when you think it should be over. Just has this really particular sense of dread and humor and. Uh, uh, yeah, I I like that one a lot.
0: Yeah. Um, I was going to ask you, what do you think makes Bolano so popular as an English, as a writer in English?
1: I don't know. That's a good question. And Chris Andrews has written a whole book about it, essentially. Mm. So uh, that's a good question for him. Uh, um, uh, I think one of his answers was that it's Bolano as a as a writer who men like, um, because there's so many writers who women like. That um, anyway, I don't I don't know if I I don't know if that that's the answer that I would give you um but um why is bologna so popular in the united states you know it's funny i feel like it's hard for me to see bologna from the outside at this point um i mean on one level i think Bolano is so popular just because he's an incredible writer and he just you know he has this narrative um uh, you know he's he's he has this narrative irrepressible quality. Um, he can't, he just can't stop telling stories. It's all the stories within stories. Um, and I think that that is very, um, I think that that's
0: very appealing. I I think that because he, his writing is so bound up into Western, and I'm talking like American pop culture and things like that, that writers in English can just dive in anywhere. And we see so many familiar themes and things and items and movies and, sci-fi novels and all of that stuff. I feel like he's just so familiar with, with American American things in Western culture in general.
1: Yeah, that's true. I could see that. Although he's also so deeply immersed in, you know, Latin American literary culture, um, like the beginning of the Savage Detectives when he's just going through this catalog of, um, you know, somewhat minor uh, Latin American poets, but, you know, it's, it's his, it's, you know, and it's, It's I think I think it's sort of also, you know, Mm his 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 um, sort of fan fanboy um, enthusiasm for the world of literature, but also his, you know, his sort of tragic sense of it at the same time. Well, I would I was also going to say, you know, also the way he he sort of spans um, Europe and the Americas in really fascinating and and Mm -hmm. um, satisfying ways, especially in 2666. Uh, But no, also in the Savage Detectives, Um, Mm. you know, the the ease with which his characters go back and forth, which I think is not so common, in the the sense that you have that he, you know, he he so fully understands, um, you know, the way those two the the way the cultures mesh.
0: Well, we are here to speak about Voyager by Nona Fernandez. You've translated three of her books now. For those of us who have not heard of her, can you tell us a little bit about her?
1: Sure. Yeah, she's a Chilean writer and an actress. She was actually. An actress first um, and she's also a playwright um, and the three books that I've translated are Space Invaders The Twilight Zone and now Voyager um, and they're all um, the first two are novels but they both have a, a very um, they're both very closely linked to nonfiction and essay um, and Voyager is a straight up essay um, mm. on memory. And she writes a lot about uh, growing up, um, you know, at the end of the Pinochet regime and coming of age, just as the Pinochet regime was ending and sort of this feeling of, um, you know, the struggle against Pinochet, but also being sort of a belated participant in it and the unsettled state of Chile post-Pinochet. So, um, so that's where, that's who she is.
0: Yeah. Well, yeah, the book itself, it's autobiographical. It's set. In Chile, obviously, it's inspired by the Voyager space mission and the murder of 26 people in the Atacama Desert under the Pinochet regime. And to commemorate, uh, she goes out to the desert um, to observe the stars, and they, I guess, dedicate stars to these different people who were murdered. Do you want to tell us a bit more about, I guess, the structure of the of this essay?
1: Yeah, well, it's it's an it's an essay in a book that's very hard to sum up. I was just looking at my report, um, and you know. It's about memory and how memory is stored. Uh, and you know, it's essentially a lot of metaphors for memory and how me- how memory is stored. Mm-hmm. And all these strands sort of, you know, um interconnect and and uh, resonate with each other in, 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 in and in and and surprising and and really moving ways. Um, so part of it, yes, is about nona's um she's she's assigned to be the godmother for one of um the twenty six people who were killed in the first days of um. Of uh, the pinochet coup and she goes to the desert to um, for the star ceremony um another part of it is about her mother who's been having these seizures and um and uh she goes to her mother's doctor's appointments with her and, and watches the brain activity on the scanner and and you know sees some um you know, sees a resemblance um, with the star patterns that she sees in the sky, and she thinks about how memory is hidden in those in those um, brain scan patterns, and memory is also hidden in the stars. And then she thinks she thinks a lot about how about memories that that we um, that are hidden inside of us that we can't access. The sort of general, um, um, you know, our our sort of shared um, social histories and shared. Um, 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 Almost sort of our our, our animal instincts, what she thinks of as a kind of memory too, mm. uh, and how those and how those um, manifest themselves in ways that we um, aren't entirely in control of
0: yeah, so. one of the points she kind of makes, I think, in this book as well, is the fact that sometimes these shared memories that we have of people we kind of end up reframing, and with the Pinochet regime and its fall and then the subsequent rise of very similar people in lots of senses who come up in Chile. Um, I think she makes that point really well in this book. It's kind of like our our capacity to reframe memories. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that and also how this book was received in Chile when it came out?
1: Yes. Well, yeah, you know, um, uh, the part that you're talking about is, is prompted by... Um, uh, a story that Nona tells about her son, who um, participates in um, in a commemorative ceremony at his school, and is supposed to write an essay about um, the uh, historical um, the historical vote to uh, hold elections um, uh, toward the end of the Pinochet regime, or to vote whether to hold elections or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, and her son wants to bring up all these facts that the teachers at the school consider inconvenient and not sort of part of the messaging that they have in mind for this sort of glorious day uh, in Chilean history. And so Nona, you know, sort of frames that as you know, um, um, you know, she says stars are you know the way that stars store memory is also is also a way of obliterating obliterating memory and, and creating these kind of black holes of information and she th- and you know humans also have that propensity um to dispose of memories that they'd rather not um they'd rather not uh, keep around so um so yeah that's that's that part of the book um i actually don't know how it was received in chile um i know in general you know she's very well received um but this particular book i'm not sure
0: are there some authors that you'd really love to see getting more recognition in English or some authors you'd like to see just in English?
1: Well, you know, the truth is, um, I read, um, I end up reading mostly in English in my free time and I don't have as much time as I'd like to read um, read in Spanish. When I do read in Spanish, I often tend to read things that have already been translated. So I don't know if I have a lot of brilliant ideas about what should be published in English. Although I will just, you know, Um, bring up a couple, and this one is kind of a random one. Um, There's this Peruvian writer, Jaime Bailey, who um, wrote a book of his years ago called Yo Amo a Mi Mami, um, which which means I love my mommy. Um, And it's just this sort of melodramatic, biting, hilarious um, uh, novel about a boy um, growing up in a a wealthy family in Peru. Um, And uh, and he's very Jaime Bailey is very prolific, and now he's a TV host in Miami. I can't speak to his later career, but that that's one book that really stuck with me. Um, another writer who I've translated um, but who has um hasn't been translated for a little while now is Marco Girl Torrente, who's a, a writer from Spain. Um, and I translated his memoir, uh, Father and Son, and um Catherine Silver translated another another novel of his. Um, but I would love to see his short stories um, being published in English. There's a collection called *Mudar de PM Most recently, um, they're very sort of cerebral and complex, and the kind of thing if you like Javier Marias, you'll like him. Oh, um, cool.
0: That sounds good.
1: Yeah, yeah, I recommend him. Um, and this is a very random one, but I've always, I t- when I was when I spent a year in college in Spain, I took a, a whole y- a year-long class on the 19th century Spanish novel, which is considered to be one of the sort of less um, less brilliant periods of Spanish literature. Um, and so I developed some fondness for some kind of, some, you know, some lesser known 19th century Spanish writers. Um, and one of the writers who I liked a lot, he's not really lesser known, but uh, was Benito Perez Caldos, um, who, uh, was sort of the 19th century Spanish equivalent to Balzac. Um, you know, he just wrote these enormous, you know, hugely prolific writer um and he had this giant series of books about the the wars spain's wars in the 19th century called the epis and the whole series is called the episodios nacionales um and none of them is as far as i know none of them have been translated and i doubt that that's a publishing project that anyone's going to undertake but i think uh i don't know just because it's so impossible i kind of like the idea of it but um for something more you know uh more approachable Mario Vargas Llosa is actually I was surprised to see has just written a book about Mm Galdós because during the pandemic he went back and read all of these Episodios Nacionales and everything that Galdós has written um, just to see if he really was uh, as good as the 19th century French writers who he's often compared to and then he wrote a book about it which is just out in Spanish called La Mirada Quieta which I'm curious to read Um, and presumably it will end up in English at some point so so there's that um, you know recent books that I've read in Spanish or in, in Spanish or in translation that are available in translation that I would definitely recommend. Alejandro Zambra, another Chilean writer who is one of my absolute favorites, um, Chilean poet. I mean, he gets a lot of he gets, you know, plenty of attention. But I feel like in some ways Chilean poet didn't get as much as attention and as much attention as some of his earlier novels, but I thought it was just fabulous and it's just lots of fun and um warm as his fiction always is and um, charming and about poets in Chile what's what could be better yeah uh, and I also just read Mariana and the cases um our share night which just out in English um and that's going to get lots of attention too, but um I highly recommend it again it's just a really gripping read um I' not usually a horror a reader of horror myself and it's not exactly I mean, you know it's 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 you know, it's it's very dark and pretty gruesome. Um, but also um there it's 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 a great portrait of a of the relationship between a father and a son.
0: Mm. Um, yes, I spoke to Megan on this podcast a while back and I just love that book.
1: Yes, I think it is, yeah. It's just great. Mm-hmm. Um and then a novel by Guadalupe Netel, The Body Where I Was Born. Um, it was my first of first book i read by in Guadalupe. Um, and I'm looking forward to reading more um it was sort of an autobi- an autobiographical novel about her childhood uh in Mexico City and in France, and then also Julian herbert tomb song, which is um you may be familiar with um sort of this um, uh sweet generous novel about his mother who was a prostitute and um uh, it's just sort of a crazy, fascinating, and um, also kind of dark, but really moving book. Um, so that's those are my those are my Spanish language world recommendations for now.
0: Brilliant. And with your translations, um, what have you got coming up, and what are you working on at the moment?
1: Well, I just starting on a novel by this Cuban writer Carlos Manuel Alvarez called Falsa Guerra. Uh, he has a couple of other books in English already. One of them is called *The Tribe*, and is he's a journalist. And that book is a nonfiction collection of his cronicas, his portraits of Cubans, some of them famous and some of them not. Um, and oh, I'm forgetting the title of his other novel. Um, um, but he is he's brilliant, and I'm I'm just loving this novel *Falsa Guerra*, and I'm so excited to translate it. Um, it's about. Um, it's about Cubans who have emigrated from Cuba and who are, you know, in many different places and many, many different states of life um, and some are still in Cuba. Um, but it's about this condition of, um, of you know, Cuba be essentially of, of everyone in Cuba knowing that at some point they have to leave um, or at least that's of the feeling that the reader gets and what it's like to live that way, and eh? what it's like to have left. Um, so interesting, And then I'm also just actually going over the, today, going over the page or the, the copied manuscript of the, my, my latest translation by Alvaro Andrigue, which is called, um, tentatively called The Dreamed of Empires. Um, I think that might be the official title now, um, and which is set during the conquest, um, Over essentially just a single day in the palace of Tenochtitlan, Moctezuma's palace, when the conquistadors are Moctezuma's guests. And it's just this crazy, um, crazy hallucinogen-fueled novel about the clash of cultures um, with a really crazy twist at the end. So just a really fun book. Okay. Um, And... Yeah, it's hard to see how there could be a twist since it's it is You know, it is historically. Uh, yeah, you should read it. But um, so those are the two most recent. Okay,
0: and with your work, we were talking before we started recording about how these works come to you. Do you want to tell us just a bit about that process?
1: Yes, sure. I'm trying to remember. Well, in the case of the Carlos Manuel Alvarez, the the Cuban novelist that is a book that I'm doing for Grey Wolf. Um, who which also publishes Nona Fernandez and um the editor there, Ethan Nassauski is someone who actually I've known since my early twenties. We both worked at Ferris Strush, Strauss and Giroux. Um but we only ended up working again on translations uh, maybe five years ago. So that was really nice to um to work to you to have to, yes, to work with him again um and um you dreamed of empires i've been i'm trying to remember how i ended up transiting alavado um and to be honest now i can't remember it's it's uh he's published in the u.s by riverhead and in the uk by harville so it's always been a kind of joint production um and i but yeah i can't remember okay no problem
0: um Shall we talk about your gateway books? What were some of the books that opened the world of literature for you?
1: Ah, so many. It was really hard to choose, but okay, let's see. Um, So, well, here's a Spanish language title, and again, one that I really definitely recommend um, readers uh, find in translation, but Nada by Carmen Laforet. She was a writer of the Post Civil War in Spain. Um, And she, the Nada was actually translated fairly, I mean, it was translated in the 50s, I think, but then it was retranslated fairly recently by Edith Grossman for the Modern Library, I think. Um, And I, you know, I read that book when I was probably 14. um, And it was a really just, you know, this kind of existentialist um, and, you know, set in the sort of the, the very bleak, post-war period in Spain, uh, about a girl who moves to Barcelona and to her, this very gothic family apartment. Um, But really, really good. Um, And, you know, I think that people who like Elena Ferrante would love Carmen Laforet. That's that's the kind of thing it is. Um, And then Colette, the Claudine novels, which again, I read in my teens and um, I just loved and um, they're just delicious and sort of decadent and, um, and wonderful. Uh, Norman Rush, Mating, which, um, uh, I saw people reading in college, but I didn't actually read it myself until after college. And, uh, again, it's just this very intense intellectual, um, but sort of also, you know, uh, I love the setting. Um, and Willa Cather, The Song of the Lark. That was another book that I read as a teenager, about a girl from the Midwest who um, who has this great talent for music and ends up um, giving up everything to move to New York. Um, and you know, for obvious reasons, I was from the Midwest myself, and uh, also I had dreams of New York. So, and it's it's, it's a very intense novel. Um Yes Night Paul, A House for Mr. Biswas. just um, the book that I've read a million times and I love. And Ben Lerner to the Atocha Station, that's a more recent one, but the way that it, um, Ben Lerner um sort of leans into all you know, all of his all of the characters' insecurities and, and um and awkwardnesses just really resonated for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and of course it's, it's also set in Madrid.
0: Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, it's a really good book. I enjoyed reading that. All right. Um, shall we talk about your the books you're currently reading or you've recently enjoyed or you're looking forward to?
1: Sure. So I picked up on my way back from Mexico, um, a book called Spinoza en el Parque México, which is by the Mexican historian Enrique Krause. Um, and he's someone I've translated in the past, just short things, and I've always really enjoyed his his histories. Um, he writes sort of historical biographies often of intellectuals. He's sort of an, in, uh, an intellectual historian of Mexico and also, and also a public intellectual himself. Um, and this book is, is his intellectual biography and it's told, um, it's actually told, it, it's actually an interview. He's being interviewed by a colleague. Okay. Um, and I'm just, I'm just finding it really addictive. It's really, it's really fun to read. Um, He's, you know, he's Jewish. So part of the, the early part of it is about growing up Jewish in Mexico City. Mm. Um, and then a lot of the rest of it, I think, is about, you know, uh, the historians who, historians of the Mexican Revolution who were his, uh, who he studied and um, and his own teachers. Uh And then I've also been reading, just starting, Elena Garro, Los Recuerdos del Porvenir. She's, in English, I think it's been translated as Recollections of Things to Come. And she's a novelist of the Mexican Revolution, so there's a little bit of a theme going on here. Mm. Uh, This is her classic novel. Um, And then I'm reading Carlos Manuel Alvarez's La Tribu. I'm just reading the the things written previously by the writer I'm translating now. and really enjoying that one. And then I'm reading Brenda Lozano, Loop, and Catherine Lacey, Pew. They happen to be two of the writers who I, I met recently, and um, I'm just really enjoying both of those books.
0: Oh, I've heard a lot about Catherine Lacey's Pew, so I'm looking forward to reading that.
1: Yeah, yeah, I'm just about halfway through it, and it's really great.
0: We'll take a quick break here on Beyond Zero. We're speaking with Natasha Wimmer. This week's episode is brought to you by my chat with the head of marketing over at Puffin. Here's a sneak peek. Could you tell us a bit more about the roll Dahl controversy? Well, it's really quite simple. In this day and age, we need to be sensitive to the needs of our shareholders. Do you mean by embracing diversity and inclusion? Oh god no, fuck that woke nonsense. No, we just need to sell a fat fuck ton of books. Now you'll have to excuse me this caviar won't eat itself. Coming soon on Beyond the Zero. We're back on Beyond Zero. It's time for Natasha's Desert Island Books.
1: So this, this category, I had to think about, you know, what the criteria should be. Um, and uh, and what I came up with, it should be things that are very long and dense, Um or things that are exquisitely civilized, because I think I'd want to read about civilization on the desert island. Um, or both, preferably both. Very long, dense, and extremely civilized. So I landed on mostly the modernists, um, And mostly I'd want them to be things that I haven't already read or have only sort of read imperfectly and could do better. Um, so that's and those were sort of my criteria for the desert island books. Um, so I would put on there wolf. To the Lighthouse, which I only read for the first time relatively recently and um, couldn't believe that I had not read before. Um, Proust in Search of Lost Time. You know, I'm this is the classic person who's read a big chunk of the first volume and hasn't gotten past that. Um, The Complete Stories of Deborah Eisenberg. Um, not a modernist, but um, somehow I feel adjacent, feel like she's a bit adjacent. Um, Henry James, The Golden Bowl, chosen somewhat randomly, just because Henry James definitely fits here, but I'm not sure which novel uh, would be best. Um, Thomas Mann, The Magic Mountain, and the uh, Javier Marias, Your Face Tomorrow trilogy, which I think would take up a lot of my time. Uh, <laughs> so those are, those are my Desert Island books.
0: I have to ask you on uh, Marias, who sadly died last year, um, his book that's coming out, Thomas Neverson, his last Last book, I believe. Um, Have you had a chance to read that in Spanish yet?
1: No, I haven't read it. Okay. You're clearly a Maria's fan.
0: Yeah. No, I think his work is unbelievable and um, so sad he died so young. But yes, never mind.
1: Yeah. Yes, I love him too.
0: Yeah. Cool. Well, I should probably wrap it up with you and let you go and enjoy the rest of your day. But before we do, do you want to tell us where we can go and find your translations? And do you have an online presence at all?
1: I do have a website. Um, although I, you know, it's, yes, it's very basic, but, um, I think it's natashawimmer.com. All
0: right. Well, I look forward to reading your next translations and, um, yeah, thank you so much for spending the time with me.
1: Well, thanks for having me. That was very pleasant.
0: Thanks once again to Natasha Wimmer. Check out the show notes for all the details. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at beyondzeropod and you can email us at beyondthezeropod at gmail.com. Don't forget to support this podcast by heading over to patreon.com and searching for Beyond the Zero. We'll be back with the next episode very soon.